Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome grace and peace to you. freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, You bite and devour one another. Take care that you're not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and don't gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, carousing, drunkenness, and the things like these. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things can't inherit the kingdom of God. And by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's no law against these things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, we will also be guided by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, would you stand with me for our gospel reading? Our gospel is from Luke chapter 9. Luke 9, 51 through 62. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. 
Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The Gospel of our Lord. So this morning, before I offer uh, my reflection, I'd like to create space for the practice of silence and openness to God and openness to each other. Here we are sharing uh, a room together, sharing a moment together, and uh, our openness to God is, uh, is important, and so is our openness to each other. Um, so we always ask you to bring your whole self to this moment, and you may not know much about how to handle silence or how to open your heart to God, but we simply ask you to do the best you know how. Uh, and to bring whatever you know uh, into this room, what, whatever your experience is. It could be lots of faith or doubt. It could be lots of um, religious background. It could be no religious background. Um, whatever you bring into the room, just bring your full self and open your heart to the Creator and to one another um, that God would be able to speak to us and, and guide us in this moment. Even as our text in, had that sort of invitation of the possibility of being guided by God's Spirit, let's open our hearts to that guidance this morning. God, we thank you for this, uh, this community. We thank you for the gift of life. Uh, we thank you for the gift of the Bible and the collection of writings that make it up. We thank you for the, the wisdom that's there, the, uh, the testimony, the great cloud of witnesses that helps us come into touch, brush up against who you are and what you're like. And in this room, we have our own experiences of that our times of great joy and beauty and wonder and holiness, but also the moments of pain and confusion and ambiguity. And we bring all of that here into this room with a listening ear and with an open heart. And we pray that you would shift in us something that would change and mold us in the way of love. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Do we have any multitaskers here in the room? Anybody pride themselves on being a multitasker? Uh, I just a few of you. A lot of hands are going up in your hearts. I know. Um, I I I often multitask, and I kind of have, it's, have held it as a badge of uh, of pride for much of my life. I, I'm having to be the king of it th these days um, because we have four children, and so it's just like one of those things that if I'm not doing two or three th things at the same time, I feel like I'm not doing enough. And there is that sense of uh, pressure and frenzy and pace in our world that drives us with anxiety to want to accomplish more than we perhaps can at any given moment. Um, there was a moment where this all came crashing into me this last week where I was carrying my, my baby in one arm, Gemma, 
So I have Gemma, and I'm feeding her a bottle. And then I'm managing two other children. Uh, my wife was running an errand. Um, uh, you might be asking, I have four kids. You're like, where's the other kid? I didn't know. So, um, and I'm, I'm feeding Gemma, and then uh, I got a phone call. And so, uh, you know, the posture is important in feeding. So I'm like keeping the certain posture. And then I, I put the phone on the shelf and I push speaker. And then I realize it's a little more of a sensitive conversation than I want everybody to hear. So I put, take it off speaker and put it on my, my, my neck and I'm doing this thing. And then uh, a timer goes off and it was just like the chaos of the moment. But I felt like, you know what, I'm multitasking. I'm getting stuff done right now. And I felt like really a sense of productivity. Um, we often feel that way. Maybe you're at the office and you're working on a specific task and then a banner comes down at the top of your, your phone screen and reminds you of something else and you go on a rabbit trail of activity in that direction. Then you get uh, a reminder or some other prompt that sends you on another direction and, and we can do a lot. But what scientists have, have shown us is that multitasking, by and large, is a myth. It's actually not possible. Um, it, it's possible for things that can be automated that don't require attention and energy and imagination. So like walking is something you can do in an automated way. So you can walk and you can talk, or you can walk and look at your phone, or you can walk and listen to a podcast. Those two things are, are multitasks technically. But the kind of multitasking we often imagine we can do is truly impossible. Like you can't uh, listen to music with words, for instance, and read text and take in at the same time uh, rate that you would if you were doing either of those singularly. Um, the same is true with conversation. You can't have a conversation with someone and be dialed in and tuned in and listening and engaged and be checking and reading screen or text. Um, it, it, there are activities that are mutually incompatible and a lot of the, the ta tasks or activities that we think are, are compatible are actually not. And so there's a big wave or push right now in terms of, uh, uh, rather than multitasking, single tasking. Um, what we've learned is that uh, people waste 45% of their energy by multitasking. Because when you are multitasking, you're actually not doing two things at once. You're toggling in your brain back and forth between tasks. And that takes up energy. And though it might be a matter of seconds or fractions of a second in your mind, the cumulative effect of that is a lot. And so we can waste up to 40% of our energy just toggling back and forth between activities. And so this single-tasked practice has become prominent and an emphasis. And when I think of the story of Jesus, I think of the power of that sort of single-mindedness, that sort of focus, that thing which drives at a deep level to focus and engage and keep on track with something. This last week, I was uh, doing a Lexio practice at the table that Kate uh, Gunger facilitated, and she did it wonderfully. Uh, the text was Mary and Martha, and do you remember the story of Mary and Martha? Uh, Jesus comes into their home, is invited in, is being treated with hospitality. Martha is doing all the work. She's prepping, and she's cooking, and she's setting the table, and getting all things set. And Mary is just present, just kind of sitting down with Jesus, listening, talking, engaging. And Martha's getting hacked off because, you know, she's doing all the work. In fact, she's so frustrated that she calls out to Jesus and says, are you not going to do anything? Do you, do you, like, see the dynamic here? And Jesus says, Mary, Martha, Martha, you who are anxious about many things, Mary's chosen the better portion. 
And he said this mysterious thing. He said, you know, there's uh, a lot of things that, that we can do in life, many things that can occupy attention in life. He says a few things are necessary, perhaps even one. And Mary's chosen the better. So that idea of the one thing, the singular, most valuable thing you can commit your life to, is put into relief. Another scenario, Jesus is uh, approached by a rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler has a question on his lips, which is, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? And through like a, a parlay of uh, talking about Torah and laws and what laws should be kept and what's essential, uh, Jesus says, yeah, that's pretty good. I like your answer. Uh, one thing you lack. One thing. And what he puts his finger on for this young man is that he's to give up his possessions, give them to the poor, and come follow him. And the guy walks away sad. Jesus, in the moment, discerning a one thing that is either needed or lacking. And we see Jesus doing this all the time. He has this fabulous way of coming into contact with people, artfully discerning where they are, and sort of putting his finger on the one thing. And that can sound very generous at times, and it can feel very restrictive at other times. So I'm, I'm actually going through a process today of uh, um, reckoning with the fact that my oldest child is 13 years old. Just turned 13 today. Um, so happy birthday, Jack. I don't think he's in the room yet, but um, happy birthday, Jack. 13 years old. And um, I've started to think about what it means to become an adult. And I've done a lot of reading and research on uh, rites of initiation and, and cultures around the world uh, for men and for women and what these have looked like and what the commonalities are. So it's just like in my brain right now and in my imagination, these rites of passage. And one of the things that I've learned is that for most rites of, of passage for men in cultures around the world, the journey to become a man or an adult begins with very hot edges meaning there's, there's like a, a real intense period of initiation, of defined boundaries, of protocol. You know, maybe you go out to the woods and you go to bed at a certain time and you wake up at a certain time and you have this specific task that you have to accomplish. And there's, there's just very strong structure. And there's separation from the normal modes of existence and reality. And you're immersed into the wild, into the ambiguous, into the uncertain, but you have this structure with it. And all of that's meant to put you in touch with your limits. It's meant to put you in touch with the frailty of your own humanity, with uh, the lack of power and control that you actually have. It puts you in touch with death. So that as you grow in strength and wisdom, you can use that strength and wisdom for something bigger than yourself. You don't have to live in the illusion of your limits or the illusion that death uh, often drives us to the illusions. And so it's, it's hard for me not to re re read a lot of Jesus' teaching here, invitations to discipleship, through the lens of initiation. That Jesus here, at the beginning of our text, is on a journey. And, you know, we learn from Joseph Campbell what the hero's journey looks like. And Jesus, in, in verse 51, is told to set his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus has been doing a lot of things, teaching, uh, living, wandering from town to town, uh, building a community, um, sort of spreading his message. But now 
he pivots toward Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will be the place where he dies. It will be the place of confrontation with the religious and political powers. On the horizon for Jesus is looming something that's very dark and difficult and heavy to carry. And so our text tells us that he sets his face toward it. There's a resolve in Jesus. Some translations say Jesus resolutely set out. That's what's happening. And as he's going ahead on this journey, he sends disciples ahead of him, and they start preparing a way in a, in a Samaritan village. And we've learned up to this point in the story that Samaritans are uh, kind of the worst of the worst from a Jewish perspective. Uh, in some ways, they were worse than Gentile outsiders because, uh, and we know this from group psychology, the, the only person worse than the outsider is the insider who became an outsider. Um, in fact, you, you, I remember uh, learning, friends of mine were in different uh, sort of religious uh, circles, I won't name them, but, uh, and I was learning about them in high school, and, uh, and I would ask a lot of questions, and I started uh, gleaning from each of them, they were in different ones, three friends, and that the, the worst penalty, or like the worst punishment in hell, or the afterlife, or whatever their belief was, was always reserved for the person who had come in and then left again, like there was a greater mercy for the people who never came in in the first place because they were ignorant, right? But the person who had come in and then gone out, they were the worst of the worst. And the Samaritans were seen in that light. The disciples go to set up shop. And then Jesus, when he arrives to the village, uh, it, it's unclear exactly what's happening here. There's two main streams of thinking on this. Either the Samaritans didn't welcome him, like the disciples were uh, not successful in building up uh, a camp, so to speak, for Jesus, and, uh, and they had to move on. Or they get to the, to the disciples, uh, they get to uh, Samaria, and Jesus is not wanting to stop there, but continue to Jerusalem, and the disciples didn't receive him. Whoever it was, the response is pretty clear. James and John, they saw this and heard this, and here's what they say. They say, Lord... Do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? So either if the Samaritans rejected them, or if Jesus says, no, we're not going to stop here, I'm going to Jerusalem, and they sort of assume in that that Jesus is rejecting the Samaritans, they fill that space, they fill that moment with vindictive, aggressive violence, stamped with God on the back. Do you want me to call down fire from heaven on these people? And Jesus rebukes them. It's, it's interesting in, in the sort of uh, initiation process, uh, one of the key focal points is harnessing and reining in that sort of aggressive, uh, violent, prone energy of a young man. And you do this not to repress it or to say that the energy is bad or that the, that sort of like warrior fight spirit within a, within a person is bad. But you do it to say, like, unless this is harnessed, it, it, it will be destructive. Uh, you, it will be used toward outsiders. It will be used in petty, vindictive, tribalistic ways. It won't be used for a greater good. It won't be used uh, with a sense of humility uh, and with a sense detached from ego. And what we're seeing in the disciples on this journey to Jerusalem, this hero's journey, is just right and left, ego flaming up, unrestrained, uncurbed. There's an aggression here. There's even some good intentions here. But Jesus has to rebuke them and say, this, this is not 
This is not what I'm about. This isn't the one thing. This isn't the spirit of God. Uh, This is the flesh, in the words of Paul in our Galatians text. This is the ego. This is dissension and rivalry and envy. It's like the the surface occupations of our consciousness. But one thing drives Jesus. It's deeper. It's deep. It's taking him right toward a difficult place. Now, along the road, you get these three voices. They're wanting to join Jesus on this journey. And each of them have uh, a sort of uh, thing they'd like to take care of, some business they'd like to handle before they join the journey. One just comes inquisitively. Verse 57, someone says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, if you're building a movement or a brand or anything, a business, and someone's like, I'm with you to the end, what do you say to that person? What do you do toward that person? Like, you're meant to reward them, right? You fan the flame of that. You uh, celebrate them and hold them up. It's like, this is what we're looking for right here. High-level commitment. We've just seen it. And this person gets a kind of coy response from Jesus. Jesus says, in response to this statement, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, foxes have dens. Birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And again, Forgive me for connecting to initiation, but a big part of initiation into adulthood is taking someone out of the space of their safety, out of the space, space of their sort of social circles where they've had a sense of self, and immersing them into the wilderness of a new world, of a new chapter, of a next phase, and letting them come into touch with their limits. Jesus is on this journey, and he's known this road without the comforts that many of us lean on, the illusions that we have to build in the face of all our fears. He knows this simple path. And someone says, I'll go with you wherever you go. And it's almost Jesus saying, I don't know if you understand what you're actually saying. You've got to leave the nest. You've got to leave the hole. You've got to somehow detach from the things that you're so addicted to, that you're so... um, tethered to and built upon, you have to learn a healthy level of distance from that. Verse 59, another one comes, and by the way, these aren't necessarily right after each other. This is like a summary of the journey. Someone says, follow me, or he says, follow me, and a man replies, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Valid, right? If I'm like, hey, I'm going to go start a church in New York City, and you're like, my dad just died. I'm going to go to his funeral first. And I'm like, nah. That's not the commitment I'm looking for. Like, you would look at me as absurd, right? What do we do with Jesus saying things like these? Again, back to that initial point. The hot edges sometimes have to, to jar us out of our normalcy of the status quo so that we can develop a healthy detachment from life as normal, life as usual, what Paul calls the way of the flesh, to be oriented to a new way, the way of the Spirit. I mean, Jesus shows great compassion in other parts of the story, in the face of death. When his friend Lazarus dies, he weeps. It's like the, you know, the one Bible verse a lot of us who grew up in church had to memorize, loved to memorize, Jesus wept. Easy, two words. And Jesus isn't uncompassionate when it comes to death. So what is Jesus doing here with this statement? Jesus is is saying that this journey, 
that this march toward Jerusalem, that this whole invitation to become like Jesus and to follow Jesus requires a level of separation. It requires a level of detachment at the core that allows us to come back to our homes and come back to our key relationships and come back to um, the lives that we've built with new eyes and new understanding and new resolve. A third voice comes and says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Once again, pretty valid. And Jesus replies, again, coyly, not directly, like, no, you can't do that. But he just says, no one puts a hand to the plow and then looks back. Is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. And this is Jesus just once again, always taking the, the, the ways that we process life through our families, through rituals like funerals and death, through the way we build our lives around homes and building our homes and building our lives. He's simply saying, these things are not the big picture. They're not the one thing. They're not the main thing. They're subsidiary. They are corollaries to the main thing. And unless you're connected to the main thing, unless you are wholeheartedly devoted to the main thing, then the corollaries won't matter. They're, they're going to get, you'll be disoriented. You won't live the life of love. You won't learn the lessons of what he called the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is always trying to press them out of the small tribal ways of creating life, whether it's at the family level or it's at the level of our rituals, our societies, our homes, the societies we build around that, our strength. And rather, Jesus is saying, come follow me. There's a level of detachment needed here. Now, everybody knows that on the hero's journey, there is that detachment. The, the hero leaves home. They leave their place. They go on a journey. And then they're able to come back to their home with a lesson learned. And this is sort of the path of discipleship. The path of discipleship for all of us requires a sense of demarcation, a sense of death to the old, a sense of detachment from the old. And this is not just old behavior patterns. This is old ways of identifying ourselves. Like, I'm a part of this family. I'm this gender. I'm this sexuality. I'm this race. I'm this uh, socioeconomic class. All those ways that we identify the self have to be detached from to a degree in order to come back to them with new eyes through the lens of this one thing. Even our key rituals in the church are like this. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, they're all pointing us to death and new life on the other side of death. They're all pointing us to something has to die for something to be reborn and renewed. And the journey of discipleship, the march to Jerusalem, is all about that journey. And right now, this morning, as you think about your own journey in following Jesus, I wonder what comes to your mind. What kind of deaths have you had to die? What kind of detachments have you had to facilitate? You know, sometimes this happens on purpose, and sometimes it happens accidentally. Like, sometimes you plan these things. Like, baptism, when it's done well, is prepared for, and it's experienced in a way that says, I am letting this go, and I'm taking on this new thing, and it's supercharged with meaning. But there are other times, times of great pain and disorientation when we're sort of immersed. I mean, the psalm, I was, tears in my eyes as we read the psalm this morning. The psalm that says, God, I cry out to you in the, in the night. What, what has to be going on in the heart 
that someone all night long is crying out to God. Their heart searches and reaches and grasps for the God who made us. What has to be going on in life? It's because great suffering and great pain often wakes us up to the one thing, to the thing that matters. If we don't have the hot edges at some point in our life, our great pain will bring the hot edge to our doorstep. And when we're confronted with that pain and with that suffering, how will we respond? In some ways, Jesus is inviting people to preempt that, like to, to, to enter consciously into detachment. But pain can do it for us as well. And not only pain, but great joy and wonder, bewilderment, a birth of a child, a marriage, uh, something that you experience that seems to be just the, the coalescing of, of so many things coming together to produce a moment of beauty that's sucking the marrow out of life. I was with someone having dinner who described the eating process as like the food making love to them. Like that's the kind of like raw attachment and connection to beauty that sometimes comes into our souls and it, and it shifts things around and it moves our perspective or reorients us to the one thing. At a funeral, when some, I've, you know, been thinking about funerals and here a funeral's reference, but funerals are great resets often. They're moments when like the things we thought we were about, that we thought were important, are reset in us. Because the things that are talked about in someone's story are often the things that are attached to the one thing, the thing that matters. And so Jesus ends with this invitation to the kingdom of God and follow me, but he's putting these hot edges around it. And I wonder what hot edges sort of need to exist in your life at this phase in your discipleship. Like, what are the hot edges? And maybe you're through to the other side, and maybe you're experiencing freedom to some degree. I mean, after all, our text told us, for freedom, Christ set us free. But that freedom comes through a healthy connection and attachment to slavery. <laughs> what it's like to know your limits. This, by the way, is why I think uh, the more power or privilege uh, you have, the more that sort of like hot edge is needed to come to a healthy sense of what freedom is. And those who have been sort of groomed in the fires and the hot edges of difficulty and oppression um, or lack of power often are ready for freedom when it's on offer. And that's what this table is about. This table is about what freedom looks like and how it comes into the world. It's about the one thing, love. Our epistle summed it up that way. The whole thing points to love. Love for God, which leads to love for neighbor. And Jesus was on the path of love. It took him to a dark place, and he had a strong resolve to go there because love was the strongest current in his life. And I wonder what difficult paths or what journeys are beckoning you. They are wooing you. They're on the horizon. They sort of taunt you. But you struggle to know whether to take up the invitation. Because there's other voices and other illusions that seem to fill your imagination and your mind. What is security and what is safety and what is meaning and what is purpose? Jesus always has a way of putting us back to the one thing. It's love. 
And you might know you're not tethered to love because you're not willing to give up your stuff and give it to the poor like the rich young ruler. Or you might know you're not tethered to love because you're so busy trying to prep things and you're not present to the relationships in your life like Mary and Martha. Or you might know that you're not tethered to love because you got to go to a funeral or you got to go talk to your family before you face the urgency of this thing right in front of you. And that's what this table points us to, the urgency of love. The urgency of being transformed in the way of love. The urgency of taking this journey of discipleship in the way of Jesus to become a true human being. And so this morning, I invite you, along with the Spirit of Jesus here on this journey to Jerusalem, to consider the calls that would take you off the path. Consider those calls. And ask yourself this question, am I willing to detach? Am I willing to say no? Am I willing to create an intentional path and space to cultivate the one thing? Love of God and love of neighbor. It's never going to be perfect. It's always this dance between accident, suffering, beauty, um, and then some planning on our part. But God is present in all of it. And God is available in all of it. So as we come to this table this morning, let's ask for God's guidance, for God's spirit guidance in our life, in our story right now. What are the words of the Spirit saying to you as you try to take those steps toward Jesus right now? Let's take a moment to be quiet and open our hearts to God once again. You're living out a story right now. You're on a journey right now. Is it the right journey? What's driving that journey? Is it connected to the one thing? Is it meaningfully connected to the one thing? Or does the one thing haunt you? Do you maybe know you're on the wrong journey or on some other journey that gives you some kind of fix, but somehow you wonder if you're on the right path. Maybe as we come to the table this morning, ask God to give you courage and vision and insight into what this next chapter looks like for you in the light of Jesus, in the light of Jesus' invitation. Holy Spirit, guide us, work in us, do what we can't do, do beyond what we're thinking or how we're, 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 we're dreaming right now. Meet us where we are. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And please take time to rate and review. And of course, we couldn't do this without your support. So if you would like to make a donation, you can text TGC Tribeca to 77977. That's TGC Tribeca to 77977. And your support is very much appreciated. Grace and peace to you.